This is Perspectives, the show where an examination of our many differences often shows us how much we have in common. I'm Condice Presley. Our guest today is author Goldie Taylor. Her three books are In My Father's House, The January Girl, and most recently, Paper Gods. Goldie's originally from University City, Missouri. She was raised in East St. Louis, Illinois. She lost her father to violence when she was only five. Her mom, Mary, raised her and her siblings alone. They moved to Atlanta like many families do. Goldie graduated from Cross Keys High. She is a veteran who served in the Marine Corps. She studied political science and international affairs at Emory University. This is her first appearance on Perspectives. Goldie, welcome, and thank you for your service to our country. Thank you, and thank you for having me. I've wanted to have you on the program for quite some time now, and what I love is that we share something in common. You're like, hmm, Mm. what is that? I need to know. We are both daughters whose mothers are Mary. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Proud Mary, mine. Absolutely, mine as well. So you are a student of public policy and current affairs, yet you write novels. Tell us about that. You know, I think novels are my way of telling the story I can't tell, Uh, my way of bringing people and events and situations to life that otherwise would go uncovered. And so... I spend an awful lot of time sort of constructing characters and worlds that look a lot like this one. And so while I write novels, they aren't very far uh, from how the land is really laid. Now, you have done many things over the course of your career. Some of our listeners may be familiar with your television work. You also have your own marketing company. How did you become the enterprise that is Goldie Taylor? You know, my kids called it Goldie Inc. <laughs> it's what they, what they call it. My grandmother had a phrase that, you know, if you can't find a job, you create one. And so there were, you know, make one for yourself. And so there were times when I was leading a multinational public relations agency, uh, times when I was uh, a CT member of a Fortune 500 company running communications, external affairs. But there was never a time when I wasn't a writer. There wasn't a time when I was not investing in myself, uh, creating pathways, avenues, for myself. And I think one day I woke up and decided that I wanted to be able to control my day, that I wanted to be able to uh, control what investment I made in myself and my family and you know the world around me. And a lot of that began with who was in control of Goldie's 24 hours. And so I literally wrote my way out of corporate America. I began writing blogs, which took me to television, and that television took me to publishing deals to create more of my fiction works. And so Goldie Enterprises, Goldie Inc., uh, was really born out of a necessity to have space for my own creativity. If you could tell your younger self one thing about what your adult self with three grandchildren knows now, what would that be? Get some sleep. The problems will be there in the morning. I spent a lot of time as a young person, you know, worried about, you know, I I was a young mom on welfare, you know, making uh, my way on food stamps and Medicaid. And, you know, I was working part-time for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution many years ago. I was also uh, on food stamps on kids for Medicaid insurance babies at the time. Uh, I think it was 25 hours a week, $7.50 an hour is what we paid at City Life back then. And so I remember the struggle being so much 
that you put those babies down to sleep at 8. And then you're studying for your classes at Emory from 8 to midnight. And then you still can't sleep because you're worried about whether or not the lights will be on tomorrow. I don't have those worries anymore. Um, you know, in a long time between then and now. But when I look back on it, that almost makes me a bit weepy, by the way. Uh, but when I look back on it, I remember not getting a whole heck of a lot of sleep and not being really worth a lot to anybody the next day. And so today I take rest as such a gift. And I take it wherever I can and uh, the world be damned about it that if there's going to be a nap today at 2, <laughs> there is a nap at 2 today. And so, and, and that's what I didn't get enough of. I didn't treat myself very well. And I think even in the midst of all of the struggle and pain and, and, the, and the fire and, and fury of things, we've got to find ways to treat ourselves well. What changed for you in between your struggle and your success? Hmm. I think it was perspective about who I believed I was versus who I thought the world believed that I was. Um, I had to, there came a point where I just honored me um, and honored, you know, the God within me, the divinity within me. My daughter has a tattoo in the back of her neck that says, you know, in Arabic, honor the divinity within. And I think it was when I took hold of what that really meant. Um perspective-wise, that really changed my posture toward my day, my posture toward my life's work, my posture toward my own purpose. And being able to stand up and say, that purpose is mine. Not that it is too big for me, but that it was made for me. And I think that was really the difference that, you know, back when there was, you know, sort of this day-to-day -day push and pull, and there still is push and pull about everything. It just depends on what you, you know, determine your struggle is. But back when it was just really purely financial, um, it was really about how I postured myself towards it. I think everybody has their challenges and struggles. I certainly still have mine, but it is about having a posture towards it that says this purpose is not too big for me, that my higher power created this purpose for me. It could not possibly be too big. Can you tell us what you know about what happened to your dad? Oh, gosh, I went back. And, you know, I think everybody has kind of has their sentinel moment in life, that thing that changes them, changes the trajectory of their lives, of their families. The death of my father is probably mine. And it took me 40 years to go back and figure it out. What law enforcement couldn't figure out, what my mother did not know, all of. There was so much confusion and mystery around what happened to him and why. And I had been, I think it's what drove me to reporting. Um, it's because I wanted to uncover and, and write about. And so my life's work was uncovering what happened to my father. And when I landed on it about two years ago, I wrote about it for the Daily Beast. Uh, my father was murdered on an empty street in St. Louis, Kossuth Avenue, walking to a card game. Everybody knew about that. Everybody knew about the card game, about the friend who invited him you know, in the middle of the night and how he left his car and, and walked to this game and he got to this house and the address and it was abandoned and no one lived there. And as he's walking away, you know, he's uh, accosted and shot. Everybody knew that part of the story. What people don't know or didn't know until I discovered it 
two years ago is that my father was a witness in a federal drug trafficking trial that year and that he was set to testify in two weeks and that another man had been killed by name Michael Jones uh, was killed a couple of weeks prior to that in October of 73 in St. Louis. And he was also a witness in that trial and that the man who was going on trial, Roland Norton Jr., was one of my father's closest friends. Now, both witnesses, state's witnesses were killed, but Roland Norton was convicted anyway. Uh, and he went to jail. I looked for Roland Norton for years, only to learn that he himself had died in 2002 of a drug overdose. But when I, by the time I unraveled the story, it took me back home uh, to the north side of St. Louis where my, do- my father lived and unraveled an entire drug war that unfolded in St. Louis between around 1960 and around 1985. And that our family was either married into or involved in, in some way, and as children, never knew any of it. And so I wrote about that story, and, and, and gosh, when you find something like that about a man that you revered, that you uh, really romanticized the thought of, you know, when you're five versus when you're 50, oh, if my father were here, he might have been like, but to find those things as you go along is, one, it's heartbreaking. It makes you want to stop looking. It makes you want to stop caring about the man that he was. But what I figured out very quickly was, but for me, um, to give some meaning to that life, there would have been no one. And I think he knew that. Was discovering that truth and learning that story and then writing about it cathartic for you? Gosh, yes. Um, it was cathartic in a way that boy, I finally got some of that sleep I was missing. I'll tell you that. Um, it was it was tough because these are things that you know these were unthought knowns for my mother, things that she knew but could not kind of put her arms around. Uh, it was cathartic for me to just sit down and write down the entire story and leave nothing out. I learned along the way that my father killed a man in 1967 was tried for uh, manslaughter and was, uh, there was a mistrial and he was never retried again, but there was a bar fight and there were two foreign exchange students from Washington University taking Polaroid pictures and selling them to bar patrons and my father ordered them to stop and they wouldn't and there was a fight and one of the men died in the fight. And um, I called my mom. I said, Mom, how did you not tell me about this? And she said, you know, I thought it was better to let sleeping dogs lie. Hmm. The things we learn. What does your mother, Miss Mary, make of the woman that you've grown to be? <laughs> she told me yesterday that I reminded her a lot like about my, she told me yesterday that I reminded her a lot of my paternal grandmother, Catherine. And I don't know if that is a, a blessing or a curse. <laughs> um, How much do you know about her? A lot. Uh, and we are a lot alike, by the way. Uh, in what ways? Catherine was um, ingenious in terms of trying to figure out how to put life together. She always sort of lived better than her means in terms of, you know, she was poor, but her clothes were folded neatly like, you know, like they were laundered somewhere. Uh, she was a very proud um, woman. Not a lot of ambition, but ambition for us, you know, her grandchildren. She could also spin a tail. Um, I think I get my sense of 
storytelling, my novel writing from Catherine. Yeah, we'd sit down for breakfast on a Saturday morning. She lived in Miami. Um, sit down at her Miami breakfast table. She'd cut open a couple of grapefruits and pour some coffee for grandfather because she was very proper this way. And then she starts spinning another tale about the family. Girl, let me tell you what happened in 75. And she could take you places with, you know, a string of words. And I have, I think my storytelling comes from Catherine. Absolutely. Well, speaking of storytelling, let's talk a little bit about Paper Gods, a novel of money, race, and politics. Uh, reading a little bit about it, it says, the mayor of Atlanta and a washed-up investigative reporter investigate a series of assassinations and uncover a conspiracy that reaches into the heart of the city's political machine. Mm. <laughs> I think they call it a romantic left <laughs> uh, fiction terms. A lot about Paper Gods is real. A lot about it, of course, is not. Um, I have taken what I believe are composite characters from people that we all know and run into around the city, and I've created a brand-new cast of characters, created a brand-new world, brand-new landscape that is Atlanta, and created a, you know, rip-from-the-headlines, you know, scandal at City Hall that's bigger than it looks. Mm. Yeah. And my mayor... Victoria Dobbs Overstreet, Dobbs Overstreet, you know, all of these <laughs> things are quite familiar. She's my protagonist, takes on a man named Virgil Loudermilk. Mm. And together they do battle over. Um, the now, who is, Virgil, who is Virgil Loudermilk? Virgil Loudermilk is a buckhead kingmaker. He is a funder of campaigns, runs a group called Reclaim Atlanta in the book. And Reclaim Atlanta is a PAC that puts its money behind, you know, candidates at the, you know, state, federal, local level. And all for a reason. And this time, the reason is a huge transportation bill, omnibus transportation bill that is worth billions to uh, the region. And he is out for control of that fund, of that federal funding. And when he doesn't get it, there is hell to pay. And the only thing standing between Atlanta and that hell is Mayor Victoria Dobbs Overstreet. And there's another character in the book I wanted you to tell us about. Uh, oh, gosh, what is his name? Uh, Hampton Bridges. <laughs> Hampton Bridges. <sighs> we probably all know Hampton Bridges. Anybody um, been around here very long uh, probably knows of Hampton Bridges. He is a reporter for the Atlanta Times Register in the newspaper, in, mm -hmm. the newspaper in, the, in the book. He is originally from Flint, Michigan, thought he was always going to be, you know, at the New York Times or a columnist for the Washington Post, but he lands at what he calls the lowly Atlanta Times Register. <laughs> and that makes him a star. Uh, he becomes, you know, the state house chief reporter and columnist and editorial board member, and then it all falls apart. Cheap booze, young women just cannot keep it all together. And in the book, we are introduced to him at a point where he is putting it all back together. He's fighting for his job. He's also fighting for his marriage, fighting for his very life. And this story, this scandal, this mayor is just the passion, just the work that he needs to put him back on the right track. And so we watch his evolution as a character, as a man in the book, um, you know, 
even in evolution, his own personal values, what he thinks is important, his ideology and his life um, evolve over time. Nobody, as Victoria says in the book, nobody comes out of this unchanged. When did you first know that you wanted to write? And second, when did you understand that you were good at it? Hmm. I don't think there was a day when I ever was not a writer. I think that, you know, back in the second grade when they give you those line pieces of paper and tell you to write your first story with four or five sentences and Goldie's flipping it over and asking for more sheets, that kind of thing. I've been writing story. I came from a family of stories. So all of my life wrote my first stage play when I was nine years old. I'd seen The Wiz and I wanted a play called Goldie back then, <laughs> which I thought was just the the, the Perfect thing. name. Perfect yes, name. Absolutely. Like share, right? Um, but I don't think you ever are good at it. I think you get better at it. And I think that's what's happened for me is I didn't go to school to learn to write. I had a ninth grade teacher who told me I could and helped me with sort of mastering the fundamentals, sentence structure. Then there came a point in life I threw all that away. Um, when you are starting to get better at it, you understand the fluidity of language and words and uh, how things really don't mean anything without their context. And so over time, you get better and you get better and you work at it like a muscle, but do you ever wake up and think you're good? I never do. Um, I've been really, really pleased about some of the reviews that Paper Gods has gotten. And it's better than the previous two books, and I hope the next book is better than Paper Gods. I think that's as, that's as much as I can say about whether or not it's good. But how long have I been a writer? Probably as long as I've been breathing. And yet in Paper Gods, there's this depth to the story where we as the readers can get caught up in the characters and the settings, but there's there's something much deeper there that speaks to, I don't know, this social contract that is the city am i am i right i think you're right i think you're right about that i think the premise of the book for me was more than about you know what will a mayor do to save her city to save her family to save herself premise of the book for me was who will control atlanta's purse strings and by extension who will control um, her voting block and that's changing here in the city and when i came to this story the, real, the realism of it is based on what I think is the social contract that this region has had and has probably existed uh, since uh, the era of Maynard Jackson's first election. That there is a north side, south side divide that is you know, really sort of fracturing itself into sort of a west-east piece now. And, and so you're watching these pockets of developments happen you know, really inside the city. And I'm a city dweller. I just refuse to live in the suburbs. I just, you know, I just love Atlanta. But you're watching development change in a way that at its core the city is changing the people who can afford to live here is changing you know i'm driving down uh spring west peach street hit 14th street and there's a brand new whole foods coming up on the corner i remember when there was a days in the crystals on peach street and those pretty ladies used to walk up and down the street by the Gorns outside of college square i remember what old atlanta looked like we all do well and those of us who've been here a minute, I should say. And I love a Whole Foods. You know, I, I take a Whole Foods when I, when I can get it. But when I 
look around and think who can live, can afford to live within earshot of that corner anymore, then it gets a little tough for me to put my arms around what are we doing as we invest ourselves in all this wonderful development for the least of these. When you find grandmothers who can no longer afford to live in their paid off homes in the old fourth war because they simply can't afford the taxes on it because the promised um, affordable housing carve outs for the Beltline didn't come to flourishing. But we're making those promises again about the West Side and its development process and a brand new park coming. And I'm excited for all of it. I just want to know what happens to the lady who can't afford her taxes on her house that she's owned her entire life. Those things worry me. And some of those worries are um, informative of what the story that came that is Paper Gods today. I, I, some of those stories really drove the writing of this one. You know, the, the thing that keeps you awake at night now is what's happening to your city. With that in mind, is that when Goldie puts down her writer's pen and puts on her activist hat? It is. I think all art is, is political. I think every painting, you know, every uh, novel that you read, everything has somebody's worldview in it. And certainly my writing uh, carries my worldview. And so if you've seen me on CNN or MSNBC, I think the places where I probably showed up most you know, over the last decade, then you have a really good idea about my theology on things and you know where I think we can do better as a society and specifically where Atlanta should be more mindful as it marches forward you know, as a city. And so I'm excited to be in Atlanta, and I, I hope I live here the rest of my life. But I want us to take good care, be thoughtful about how we grow and how we, how we maintain access to prosperity, how we maintain and, and grow access to equity, you know, how we connect people and create community. You know, I am a, um, those things are, are problematic almost everywhere you go in these United States. But Atlanta's home, and so this is, this is the place I care about. What are you working on now? What's next for you? Gosh, well, there's a lot of projects, and um, this is the exciting part. And so Paper Gods has been optioned as a, uh, a dramatic series. And so you may see that story come to a television or streaming uh, company near you. Um, I'm working on its sequel. King of Gods is coming next year. And some of the same characters, brand new story, still Atlanta. And then finally, I am producing a podcast that I am sad to have to be doing, but glad to be able to be doing. If you remember the story 20 years ago of a young man named Michael Lewis, we called him Lil B, um, convicted of murder at age 13 and sentenced to life. I am reopening the story of Lil B and... You know, he's still in prison. He's 35. And his name comes up whenever there's a big political campaign and people talk about, you know, the so-called super predator. Yeah. With a Michael Lewis that I am coming to know um, through the writings of others and other sources, isn't that at all? And what we haven't heard in all of these 22 to 23 years, we haven't heard Lil B's voice. And so my goal with this podcast, um, if the stars align, is to let 
Michael Lewis tell his own story. Sounds like an exciting project. What do you want readers to to take away from Paper Gods as we wait for King of Gods to come out? I think I want people to take away that, um, you know, I hope they really enjoy the story, that it takes them someplace. I hope they're mad as hell at me by the time it's over uh, because I hope I've put that much drama and intrigue and conflict in it. So I hope that I hope I killed some of their favorite characters. I do. (laughs) So I hope that when they come away, that they have truly been taken somewhere with a story and that and that they really despise me for writing it. But then I hope that they come away with a new sense for how they look at the world that they live in and the frailty of humankind and, and the importance of of body politic and how everybody gets really to play a role in it. Goldie Taylor, thank you for your time. Thank you. Perspectives is a half hour we produce with you in mind. If there's something you think we ought to be talking about, let me hear from you. Tweet me, condo 29 on Twitter or leave a message on our Facebook page. We do appreciate your listening and hope you'll be back next week at this same time as we examine another perspective. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.